0: Okay, three, two, one, oh my goodness, good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schomler. this is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Saturday, July 19th, and uh, this is the big one. <laughs> this is um, the Kirk Cousins episode. If you've been following me on my Instagram story, you know that I've been working on this topic for a long, long time. And uh, I, I'm very proud of this episode in general just because I you know, haven't done an episode in a while. And I've been really waiting until I had enough content to fill out a giant, you know, a really a meaty, impactful show. You know, a lot of the sports media right now is total filler. And I, I, when I speak, I want to say something that I believe and I'm convicted in, something that I think is really important to the sports world. you are seeing a lot of crappy headlines right now. And I, I just didn't want to join in in the rest of that around the sports world. Uh, so again, the giant topic today is going to be a Kirk Cousins... Film analysis slash, you know, an analysis of the entire 2018 Vikings offense. Uh, We're going to later discuss the value of NFL running backs. We'll talk about Ezekiel Elliott. We will talk about Melvin Gordon. We're going to talk about DK Metcalf, a rookie wide receiver with the Seattle Seahawks. We'll talk about the Russell Westbrook trade. We'll talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, A little bit of baseball. We're going to talk about Last Chance You, the Netflix series. Um, Coincidentally, one of my, you know, ah, coincidence, probably not the right word there, but It's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's Last Chance U. It's a great show. Uh, We'll discuss that uh, season four today in today's episode. And then at the very end of the show, I'm going to do a film analysis of the Clemson quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. Very excited. A lot of stuff today. Uh, Real quick, before we jump into the Kirk Cousins topic, um, I got to say, you know, I have never struggled more in the process of developing a topic for this podcast Um, than this Kirk Cousins film analysis. Uh, You know, when I started watching the 2018 Minnesota Vikings offense, my goal was to determine whether or not Kirk Cousins is in fact a good quarterback. And the story very quickly changed to be about more than Kirk Cousins. And uh, I went honestly down the deepest rabbit hole I've ever gone in the history of this podcast. I just did hours and hours of research. um, And I'm, I'm very proud of what I've done. You know, I watched a lot of teams... Uh, you know, I researched other teams to reference the Vikings offense. Why did the Vikings struggle when other teams succeeded? teams like the Patriots, the Cowboys, the Seahawks, the Saints, the Chargers, the Rams, the Eagles. I think I said the Cowboys already. Um, I learned a lot during this process, and it was just a you know when when I finished my all my research, I had literally an entire notebook uh, full over two hundred pages of content full of the Vikings offense. And it was just too big. I had to make cuts. And that was a really weird process. Like, okay, what is the most important information from all of this? And, uh, you know, at times this video and this this topic was incredibly discouraging. But ultimately, I'm very proud of it. I believe all the extra effort was worth it. And, and I really, really hope you enjoy uh, what I have to say about Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings offense. So in case you don't know, I don't know how people don't know, but I just always try to make the show accessible to everybody. Um, Kirk Cousins is the Minnesota Vikings quarterback And he is in fact a good quarterback I, I, I like him uh, When you watch his tape There are f- honestly just too many things That are good You can't deny the fact that he's good at his job Now the first thing I like about Kirk Cousins Is the way he handles blitzes uh, There's a play week one against the 49ers It's third and eight And the 49ers bring a blitz They bring extra defenders Meaning they have fewer guys in coverage Kirk Cousins stays calm. He understands that the blitz means he has a good matchup outside. He throws to Adam Thielen for a 15-yard gain. And, and I really like that. That's a guy who understands blitzes and is calm under pressure of a blitz. He's like, okay, they're bringing extra guys. Got a good matchup. That's great. And not only that, but over and over and over again, Kirk Cousins really impressed me with great throws against man coverage. Repeatedly, teams that give him a you know, man coverage on the outside – and he would shred them. Kirk Cousins is really good against man coverage. This is a strength of his. He also does a really good job manipulating defenses with his eyes. There's a play week four against the Rams and Kirk is disciplined with his eyes. He looks right, then snaps his eyes to the left and throws to Stefan Diggs. This is a really good route and a great completion to move the sticks on third down. But the reason why this was made possible, it was made possible by the eye manipulation of Kirk Cousins. This is not a completion without Kirk Cousins' eyes. Stefan Diggs, the wide receiver, is trying to convince defenders that he's running across the field. Kirk understands he has a great matchup on the left, and the entire time knows he's going to go to Stefan Diggs eventually. But the route needs time to develop. If Kirk had stared left the entire time, he would have brought other defenders to the area, and the route would not have been open. Stefan Diggs would not have been able to sell the route. This completion was made possible by Kirk Cousins' eyes. Again, the guy does a lot of things really well. There are, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. There are simply too many good throws on tape to be ignored. Kirk Cousins is a good quarterback, but here is where I will draw a line in the sand. He is good. He is not elite. And what that means is that he's not one of the top quarterbacks in the entire NFL. I'm sure that's not a shocking revelation. He's a tier below guys like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and others. You know, because for all of the good moments you see, a good throw against man coverage, he handles a blitz really well. He manipulates a defense with his eyes. For all those really good moments, you also see a lot of moments where he misses on small details. I can't call him an elite quarterback because there are too many moments I'm uncomfortable with. You know, he misses a lot of throws. He's just weirdly inaccurate out of nowhere at times. And often at crucial moments. There's a third and five against the Bills where he had Adam Thielen open and just completely missed. It's not just physically, though. It's also mentally. Uh, week two against the Packers, there's a mix-up in coverage. The Packers are playing cover three cloud. What that means is, you know, tr- first of all, traditional cover three is where the field is broken up into three deep territories. A safety plays a deep middle third, and then the corners on each side, the right and the left, play the right and left deep third of the field. It, they're like, the field is broken up into three boundaries for defenders to cover. Cover three cloud is a different wrinkle on that same idea. In cover three cloud, the field is still broken up into three deep territories and three deep areas, but the responsibilities change. Only one corner drops to cover a deep third of the field. The other two areas are covered by safeties rather than corners. One safety each covers a third of the field. It's basically the same coverage. But the key difference is that one of the corners doesn't drop back to cover a deep area of the field. I'll explain it from a quarterback's perspective. The safety on the left side of the field takes the deep third along the left sideline. The safety on the right covers the middle third. And both safeties believe that the corner on the right side of the field is going to cover the deep third along the right sideline. Clearly, they're not on the same page because the corner gets confused and doesn't do that. He allows Adam Thielen to run right past him, either thinking he had help or just got confused. I don't know what happened, but he allows Adam Thielen to get right past him. The point is this. Adam Thielen is wide open and Kirk Cousins doesn't get him the ball. And look, it's awkward to point out things like this. I can acknowledge, you know, I played quarterback in college. I can acknowledge that when you're watching game film from the angle of a press box higher from up above, The game is different than when you're playing quarterback in the moment. But no matter how much you empathize with Kirk Cousins, a top-tier quarterback, guys like Drew Brees and Tom Brady, would not miss a busted coverage like what the Packers did here. Instead of throwing for a touchdown, Kirk Cousins simply scrambles for a one-yard gain. And that's just the beginning, by the way, of all the weird mistakes and weird plays Kirk Cousins has. Against the Jets, he's inaccurate on the goal line and costs his team a touchdown. Week 11 against the Bears... He misses an easy, wide-open touchdown to Stefan Diggs. It's just weird. Kirk misses far too many opportunities for me to feel comfortable calling him an elite quarterback. Now, the real breaking point for me, though, was the pick six in the fourth quarter against the Chicago Bears. So for context, it's week 11. The Vikings are 5-3-1. The Bears are 6-3. This is a big divisional battle with playoff implications. The Vikings are down 14-6. There's eight minutes left. And this is a big moment. It's a pivotal drive. And guess what? Kirk Cousins throws a pick six. And by the way, it's a bad read. This is a very simple read. The Vikings run a smash concept. They have a short route in the flat with a corner route behind it. You're supposed to read the corner, that defender. If he backs off and plays soft, you throw the open route in the flat. Instead, for some reason, Kirk Cousins doesn't do this. The corner backs off. The flat route is wide open. But instead, Kirk floats the ball up to the corner route. It's the wrong read on a simple concept that quarterbacks run from the time they're in eighth grade. They run it their whole lives. Eddie Jackson intercepts the pass and runs it back for a touchdown. Suddenly, the Vikings are losing 22-6 in the fourth quarter in a giant game against the Chicago Bears because of their quarterback. There are just far too many weird moments like that from Kirk Cousins. I just, I, ugh, it's, I he does so many good things. I want to like him. I want to root for him. I want to call him a great quarterback. But his attention to detail limits him from being a top quarterback in the NFL. He's not elite. In fact, the term I would use is something I don't say very often. Um, Kirk Cousins is exactly A system quarterback. Now, usually when people say system quarterback, it's because they're being lazy, right? It's not a very good term. People often misuse it. But I think it really, really fits very well with Kirk Cousins. Look, it's obvious. Every quarterback benefits from having great play calling. Just a fact, right? But when I say Kirk Cousins is a system quarterback, what I mean is that he's only as good as the plays called and designed by his offensive coordinator. Look, it's obvious, but true. You know, His success comes from play calling. There is no extra from Kirk Cousins. You know, Tom Brady's not a system quarterback because if a bad play call is made, he'll change it at the line of scrimmage. He's not limited by his offensive coordinator. Patrick Mahomes is not a system quarterback because if a bad play call is made, he can still make it work. He can run around or do something ridiculous with his arm. There's none of that. There's none of that extra stuff from Kirk Cousins. Again, every single quarterback benefits from having a good offensive coordinator. But Kirk needs a good offensive coordinator. More than the offensive coordinator needs Kirk Cousins, he's only as good as the guy calling plays. He's not running around extending plays, he's not making ridiculous throws, and he's not changing many plays pre snap. He's vanilla. He's a fine Kirk Cousins is a fine NFL starting quarterback. He's a good one. He's good at his job, but he's not elite. He's good, not special. Yeah, it, it's so harsh. I don't. It, it. It just. It's true though. You know, I would liken Kirk Cousins to the Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott. Uh, they have they have very different strengths and very different weaknesses, but the one sense they are similar is that both Kirk and Dak can win games. If you support them with a good team and good play calling. But they're both also only as good as what is around them. It's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If Kirk Cousins has help, he can win a ton of games in the NFL. It's not necessarily a knock against you, right? You cannot say that every quarterback in the NFL can win games. Kirk can. He's better than most. He's a solid, I think even I would use the term franchise quarterback. He's a good quarterback. He's good. He's not elite. He's not special. There's nothing extra, though. Now, statistically, 2018 was one of Kirk Cousins' best seasons in the pros. He threw for 4,298 yards, 30 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and had a 70.1% completion percentage. And yet, despite all that production, the Vikings still went 8-7-1. and one. They missed the playoffs. Their offensive coordinator got fired. So what happened? What beyond Kirk Cousins went wrong for the Vikings offense? One of the major reasons for the 2018 Vikings offensive struggles was because their offensive line was terrible. They were awful, awful, awful. Now, um, I want to be careful here. You know I want to be sensitive to the fact that you have to acknowledge a big thing that I believe factored into the Vikings offensive line struggles was that their offensive line coach, Tony Sperano, Died in July right before training camp. Uh, like, very sad. Hor- death is horrible. My younger brother died three years ago. Um, loss is always terrible and it affects you in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's very clear to me that without him, the Vikings offensive line really struggled. Now, uh, another factor though is that their group did have a number of injuries. A lot of people always cite, well, the Vikings offensive line was injured all the time. And yes, but that's not a good enough excuse. Uh, the starting five offensive linemen for the Vikings still played over 75% of the Vikings' total offensive snaps. Even when the starters were healthy enough to play, they did not do their jobs well. They got beat all the time. Constantly, these guys were getting beat by defenders. They couldn't block a four-man rush, and they couldn't win matchups running the ball even when they had numbers in the box. And here's what that means football is all about matchups, often about math. There are 11 defenders on the field. If a defense brings four guys to rush the quarterback, it means they drop seven guys back into coverage. You know, most teams have five wide receivers, sometimes four, sometimes even just three. The simplest way to put it is this no matter how you do it, if a defense can drop seven guys into coverage, and get pressure on a quarterback with only a four-man rush, it creates a losing math equation for the offense. It's the simplest, most concise way I can put it. In fact, that's largely how the Giants slowed down the Patriots in the Super Bowl when that Patriots had that undefeated season. The Giants were able to get pressure with a four-man rush, and it caused problems for Tom Brady in that Super Bowl. Because the Vikings' offensive line was so bad, basically every single team they played was able to get pressure with a four-man rush. It's really hard to win when you can't block a four-man rush. Guys got beat over and over and over again. In week eight, the Saints, in fact, at one point only brought a three-man rush. And the Vikings were unable to block three guys with five offensive linemen. That is atrocious. That is horrible. For context, when the Eagles quarterback, Carson Wentz, dropped back against a four-man rush, he was not instantly under duress. He had time to read the defense and do his job. And that is the standard. If a team brings a four-man rush, you got to be able to block it. And the Vikings were unable to make that happen. Kirk was regularly unable to go through his read progressions because of how quickly pressure got to him. The Vikings couldn't pass block. They also couldn't run block either. The box or the tackle box is an important vocabulary word you need to understand for this part. Uh, The box is an arbitrary area around the line of scrimmage. The box includes all five offensive linemen, any tight ends or wide receivers, or potential blockers that are tight to the line of scrimmage, and then also includes any and all defenders who are in the area able to play the run. So offensive coaches regularly talk about a term called counting the box. And what that means is the concept of counting the number of defenders around the line of scrimmage who are able to play the run. Now, the Vikings had the 30th-ranked rushing offense in the entire NFL. That's out of 32 teams. They were basically one of the worst teams rushing the ball in the entire NFL last year. That's because the Vikings were terrible at running the ball when they had favorable numbers in the box. They were unable to win matchups and block effectively. Week 5 against the Eagles. The Vikings motioned their tight end, Kyle Rudolph, tight to the line of scrimmage. This gave the Vikings even numbers in the box. Six defenders for the Eagles and six blockers for the Vikings to block them. Six on six. And yet, even when the Vikings had favorable numbers in the box, they couldn't win matchups. Another example is week 14 against the Seattle Seahawks. It's the fourth quarter. It's third and goal on the two-yard line. The Vikings are down six to nothing. Just over nine minutes left in the game. The Vikings need a touchdown at this moment. They need a touchdown right now. They got good numbers in the box, six on six, and yet they couldn't get any push and were stopped. And here's what's really sad about this information. I looked around the entire NFL, you know, at the Patriots, the Cowboys, the Rams, the Saints, the Eagles, the Chargers, even the Giants with Saquon Barkley. Most teams don't even need even numbers in the box to run the ball well. And when you look around the NFL, this is how most teams who run the ball effectively are able to make things happen. Look at the Cowboys. Even when the Cowboys last year were in situations where they were down in the numbers. There's a, uh, an example here. They're seven on six. Six guys to block seven defenders. They still ran for a 15-yard gain. If, if you take close notice, you know, they run to the left and don't even block the farthest guy to the right. My point is this though, most NFL teams were running the ball successfully even when you count the box and they were short a guy. They had six guys to block seven defenders. Not only could the Vikings not run the ball in scenarios where they were down one when you count the box, they couldn't even win even matchups with six on six or seven on seven. Their offensive line got beat over and over and over again. Now another issue with the 2018 Vikings offense was how frequently they sabotaged themselves. A lot of self-sabotage went on last season. One of the most surprising moments of the 2018 NFL season, if you ask me, was week three when the Buffalo Bills crushed the Minnesota Vikings. It was surprising. Oh wow, what the heck? On offense, the Vikings were terrible that day. They were horrible execution. The O-line could not stop the Bills' four-man rush. Kirk Cousins had two fumbles. He also missed multiple throws on third down. Adam Thielen had a crucial drop on third down. And even there was a pass that popped up in the air and was intercepted. A lack of attention to detail and poor execution repeatedly cost the Vikings offense in 2018. This is why week three, the Bills dominated the Vikings 27-6. It was a surprise to me, but actually a repeating, you know, recurring trend, which is a lack of execution... By the Vikings offense. Another example of this is Week Eight against the Saints. The Vikings were leading 13 to 10 right before halftime. It's first and ten. There's a minute and 11 seconds left before halftime. The Vikings have the ball on the 18 yard line. It's very important. 18 yard line. They're in the red zone, about to extend their lead. First and ten, and then Adam Thielen fumbles the ball. The Saints return the fumble 54 yards. Plus, there was an unsportsmanlike penalty on the Vikings. And now suddenly the field is flipped. Remember that 18 yards on the Saints now have the ball. Instead of the Vikings about to score and extend their lead, the Saints now have the ball coincidentally also on the 18-yard line. And the Saints quickly scored a touchdown. So now the Vikings went into halftime down 17-13 to 13, rather than going into the half with a lead and potentially a two-score lead. Over and over again, the Vikings shot themselves in the foot with poor execution. Now, one of the weirdest parts of the 2018 Vikings season was the philosophical differences and very vocal differences between the Vikings head coach Mike Zimmer and their former offensive coordinator, John DiFilippo. Uh, the head coach Mike Zimmer wanted the offense to run the ball more. He said it over and over again, very vocally. And John DiFilippo seemed to have his own plan, and the two of them never really seemed like a good fit together. Now, after 13 games into the Viking season, John DiFilippo got fired. And so the question to me was how much of the Vikings' struggles on offense were the fault of their former offensive coordinator, John DiFilippo. And when I look at the film, John DiFilippo was not completely inept at play design. He's not an idiot, and he's not a terrible offensive play caller. One example of creative play design by John DiFilippo is to play week five against the Eagles. The Vikings start to play with an orbit motion by Stephon Diggs. They then run an inside zone fake. They fake the run inside to freeze the defender on the edge. And then they throw the ball outside to Stefan Diggs. This is a really clever play design. What it does is create a two-on-two matchup outside on the right. There are two receivers blocking two defenders, and that puts Stefan Diggs in a race with the defender chasing him from the other side of the field. It's a good play. It's a good gain. And often, the Vikings had good play design, that was wasted with poor execution and poor blocking. There's a different play in the same game. The Vikings run a screen with Stefan Diggs to the left. It's a great setup. There are two offensive linemen blocking a tiny corner and a linebacker. It puts Stefan Diggs in a race with the safety who's really far away in the middle of the field. The problem is that the linemen miss their blocks. And the Vikings miss out on what probably would have been a touchdown. John DiFilippo, the former Vikings offensive coordinator, was not an idiot. He had some good ideas, but here is where I think he missed the mark. I don't think he did a good enough job adapting his offense to the weaknesses of his personnel. And what that really means is I think he could have done a better job building his offense around the strengths of his players. A great example of this is the Vikings tight end Kyle Rudolph. Uh, Just recently in June 2019, the Vikings re-signed Kyle Rudolph to a four-year, $36 million extension. Kyle Rudolph is a great pass catcher. There's a reason why the Vikings gave him a contract extension. He's a really bad matchup for linebackers trying to cover him running routes. He also has great hands. He contributes often on third down. However, he's a terrible, terrible run blocker. And I mean awful. He's soft, he gives poor effort, and he's not a very skilled blocker. Kyle Rudolph was not going to push anybody around in the running game last year. It's not going to happen. It's not who he is as a player. And yet, for some reason, that's exactly what was asked of him in 2018. And it frequently cost the Vikings. Regularly, he would miss his block. And often, the guy who was assigned to block would make a tackle on the running back. He was the reason for a lot of their struggles running the football. Now, should Kyle Rudolph be a better run blocker? Yes, absolutely is getting paid millions of dollars. He should improve in that area. But asking him to be a big part of the running game last year was just setting him up to fail, setting him up to fail and setting the Vikings up to fail. And this is not the only example of that. The Vikings offensive line in general was just not very skilled. And often the former offensive coordinator, John Filippo would call complicated running schemes that involved linemen pulling for blocks and making more difficult types of blocks. Given the ability level of the Vikings offensive line, these were simply unrealistic expectations for their running game. Now look, I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been for John D Filippo to leave the Eagles, a team that had a really talented offensive line, and then suddenly be working with the Vikings terrible offensive line. Right? That's a shock and he had bad personnel overnight. But the play calling still needed to adjust, and it never did. It never changed. He never adjusted his approach. Week 14 against the Seahawks, the right tackle was asked to pull and block an interior linebacker. He failed. And by the way, this is the same guy that all year struggled to make very simple, easy blocks. He couldn't block a normal zone concept where he steps in one direction and literally blocks the very first thing he sees. Pulling is a more difficult type of block, and yet they expected him to be able to do that. I just, man, I don't get it. I I really believe at times the Vikings running game should have been dumbed down to fit the players they were dealing with. John DiFilippo, the former offensive coordinator for the Vikings, had good ideas, but he didn't do a good enough job adjusting his offense to fit his players. And after week 14, he was fired. He was out. But you got to be clear here, no matter who the Vikings offensive coordinator was, the offensive line was going to be a problem, right? They couldn't block a four-man rush. They couldn't win when they had good matchups on the inside in the box. No matter who the offensive coordinator was, that guy was going to struggle. But John DiFilippo could have done a better job handling the situation and setting up his players to succeed. Uh, Now, honestly, I never really understand why the Vikings even hired John DiFilippo in the first place. But before the 2018 NFL season started... The New York Giants made a move to hire the Vikings assistant coach, Kevin Stefanski, as their offensive coordinator. The, Vikings tried to hire, uh, the Giants tried to hire that guy away, and the Vikings blocked the move. The Vikings said, you're not taking our assistant, and they would not let Kevin Stefanski leave. Um, now, if you don't know, you can block an assistant coach from leaving unless they're leaving to be a head coach. So on February 10th, 2018, last year, the Vikings head coach made a big stink To keep this guy Kevin Stefanski around. Even though the day before on the 9th. He had just hired John DiFilippo. To be the next Vikings offensive coordinator. And what's interesting to me is that after 13 games. DiFilippo was fired. And replaced by that guy Kevin Stefanski. And I just you know. Throughout the first 13 games of the season. Mike Zimmer the Vikings head coach. Repeatedly called out the offensive coaching. Called out the plays being called. And I, I just, it was very weird to me. He kept saying, we're not running the ball enough, this and that. And I don't understand why he hired him. Why did Mike Zimmer hire John Filippo? You don't hire a guy and then micromanage him. Let him do the job you hired him to do. The whole thing was weird to me. I just don't understand why you would even hire John Filippo in the first place if you didn't respect his approach. I, I just, I don't really believe the Vikings head coach, Mike Zimmer, allowed John Filippo to be in his best position to succeed. So again, I don't understand why Zimmer wasted 13 games with John DiFilippo. Didn't seem like he respected him. Didn't seem like he liked him very much. It seemed like he should have been Kevin Stefanski all along. But now it is. Now it is. Currently, he is the Vikings offensive coordinator. And for the last three games of the 2018 season, Kevin Stefanski, from week 15 on, was the new guy calling plays in Minnesota. You know, for one game, by the way, with the new offensive coordinator, for one game, the Vikings offense looked pretty good. In week 15, they put up 41 points on the Miami Dolphins. And I would even say, by the way, the first drive against the Dolphins was their best offensive drive of the entire 2018 season. Early in that game, they had a six-on-six situation in the box, and they won. And running the ball more frequently made play-action passes more effective. By the way, in case you don't know, play-action is a fake-run pass. It's a bluff. You fake the run and then you throw the ball. But it only works if it's convincing. In order to run a play-action pass, you first need to either establish the run or make it clear your team is trying to run the football. That way, the run fake is believable. And that, by the way, is why consistently running the ball matters. Even if you aren't getting a ton of yards, running the football is valuable because it sets up play-action passes. Week 16 against the Lions... The Vikings ran a play-action fake. The run fake pulled the Lions' defensive back number 28, Quandre Diggs, inside. The run fake influenced a defender to a different part of the field, which allowed Kyle Rudolph to get wide open. Consistently running the ball and using play-action is very important to the Vikings' head coach, Mike Zimmer. And I I think he was right to believe in it, right? Running the ball, first of all, it takes more time off the clock. It helps your defense get rest. Mike Zimmer was a defensive-minded head coach. But it also helps your quarterback. The Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins, was way more effective when you had a healthy running game and was able to use play action. Now, the Vikings new offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski, made a number of small changes that instantly made a difference. First of all, he very quickly accepted that complicated running schemes were not going to work for the Vikings offensive linemen. You know, his offensive linemen were simply not very talented. He stopped asking them to pull and make more difficult types of blocks. He also began using tight end Kyle Rudolph differently, asking less of him as a blocker. Instead of asking him to push guys around, they used him to bait defenders into the backfield and take them out of the play. Another small change they made was they began to get the ball out of Kirk Cousins' hands more quickly. You know, he was playing hot potato with the football. From the shotgun, he would catch the ball, take a zero drop, which means that he would catch the ball and immediately throw the football. From under center, he'd take three-step drops and get the ball out as quickly as possible. And the changes helped. But even with the new offensive coordinator, the Vikings still had the same glaring issue. Their offensive line still struggled. Guys lost a ton of matchups on the offensive line, and times when Kirk Cousins didn't get the ball out of his hands immediately he was screwed again he basically had to play hot potato with the football oh crap get rid of it it didn't if he didn't do that it was over for him because the vikings could not protect their quarterback any kind of complication like you know defenders crossing at the line of scrimmage or a delayed blitz would inevitably cause a sack for the vikings and the running game still struggled at one point in the lions game The Vikings had a five-on-five inside the box. Five defenders, five offensive linemen to block them, and nobody in the middle of the field. If the running back could get through, he was gone. This is a dream scenario for an offensive line, and yet still, they were unable to execute their blocks. So look, Kirk Cousins was not the problem for the 2018 Vikings offense. He makes too many weird mistakes for me to be comfortable calling him an elite quarterback. You know, he's a tier below guys like Tom Brady and Drew Brees. But he still is a good quarterback. In fact, the, the fact he was able to throw 30 touchdowns and over 4,000 yards with that offensive line is a borderline miracle. It deserves your respect. Kirk Cousins put up incredible numbers with a terrible, terrible offensive line. So going into the 2019 NFL season, you know, these are my biggest questions for the Vikings offense. Number one is this, will their offensive line improve? You know, this was their biggest issue last season. They, they did let a few guys go, but their offensive line is still very much a question mark and very much should be a question mark. Their offensive line, that is what I want to watch next year with the, for the Vikings offense. The second question I have is, will there be coaching turmoil in Minnesota? Uh, you know, To me, Mike Zimmer, a defensive-minded head coach, meddled with the offense last year. And that's, in my book, a big no-no. You don't do that. And there's a couple reasons why Mike Zimmer might have been so vocal about the offensive line struggles and the play calling. Uh, you know, one one belief is maybe it was he was trying to shift blame away from him to someone else and protect himself. You know, it seems silly to me that to believe that Mike Zimmer might be on the hot seat and potentially could be fired. But hey, that's, that's a possible scenario. What I think is even more likely is that You know, it seems like someone forced him to hire John DiFilippo, the former offensive coordinator, and it seems like Mike Zimmer never really wanted him. But either way, you know, first of all, Mike Zimmer has his guy now, Kevin Stefanski, running the offense. But I'm still curious to see next year in 2019, this upcoming season, is there any kind of coaching drama in Minnesota? That's what I want to see. The offensive line, is there coaching drama? The third question I have about the Vikings offense is, will Kirk... Cousins take a step forward. He's a really good quarterback. If you support him, he can win a lot of games in the NFL, but he makes far too many weird mistakes. He needs to eliminate those if he wants to take his game to the next level. I like Kirk. He's good. He's not elite, but he could be if he made fewer weird, quirky mistakes and lacked attention to detail. Now, finally, my fourth question about the Vikings offense going into next season is in fact their running back Dalvin Cook. Is Dalvin Cook. Any good. I'll be honest, he did not impress me on film last year. Uh, Now, I do give him the benefit of the doubt because the last two seasons, he struggled with injuries. But to me, Dalvin Cook looks just like another guy. He's a solid, professional running back and nothing really special. Uh, You know, the best backs in the NFL, guys like Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley, Todd Gurley, they can do it all. They can break tackles at the line of scrimmage. They can run through arm tackles. They can pass block. And they can contribute by catching passes in the passing game. And I'm really curious to see what kind of performance we get from Dalvin Cook this year. Will he take a step forward? Is he potentially a a really top-level running back? Or is it more likely that he's just another guy? He's a fine, solid professional running back who is nothing that special. That's what I'm curious to see. And really, in general, guys, that's all I have. That is my entire analysis of the 2018 Vikings offense. Oh, man. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> that was, uh, man, I guess, you know, shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't don't want to offend anybody. Um, but man, this that was a, a lot. That, that whole project um, just was hard. Took a lot out of me. Took a long time to record, um, you know, and it's going to take forever to edit. Uh, I really hope people like it. Maybe they won't. Honestly, you know, I expect to put this out and get like 20,000 views and, and barely, and that's not barely anyone, but I'm not gonna, I'm not expecting big numbers from this. It's gonna be too long for people to watch. But you know, either way, I am proud of what I just made and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, every single episode, I do a topic um, called, if you're struggling, get help. The reason for this is that three years ago, my younger brother took his life. And uh, in this instance, you know, three years ago, there are two really sad facts that stick with me about my brother's death. Uh, The first one is that I feel like, in fact, I know I didn't do a good enough job making it clear I was there for him. I didn't do a good enough job reaching out. And so I encourage anyone, make sure the people around you know that you love them, know that you care about them, that you're there for them. If they're having a hard time, make sure it's very clear for the people in your life. The door is wide open and you're there for them if they're having a hard time. The second thing that makes me sad looking back on my brother's death is that he never told anybody he was struggling. He never reached out for help. He suffered in silence. You know, I, I, once a week, I went over to my brother's house. I physically drove over there, took my Xbox in a, in a Tupperware container in a giant box. And we set up my Xbox and played Halo together. I saw him once a week and we never talked about, hey, I never said, hey, are you having a hard time? And he never told me he was having a hard time. We never had that conversation. And so I encourage you, make sure the people in your life know you love them. And then if you're having a hard time, if you're struggling, please go get help. Go get professional help. Go talk to somebody. Do not suffer in silence. Uh, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255 again the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255 uh, just make sure the people in your life know you love them and if you're having a hard time please do not suffer in silence don't do what my brother did and and, and die without ever getting help without ever talking to someone and out you know he he just one day i found him dead in his room and that was horrible it was sad and and i want to prevent that from happening in the future so that's a a topic i'm really really uh, I really care about deeply. Uh, okay, there's a lot of show left. I'm going to take a short break. But when I return, we got two whole, uh, you know, we got a, a lot of show, like probably another hour left of the show. We're going to talk about the value of NFL running backs. We're going to talk about Ezekiel Elliott's contract situation. We're going to talk about Melvin Gordon. We're going to discuss DK Metcalf, the Seahawks wide receiver. We're going to talk about the Russell Westbrook trade. And then later down the road, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers, we're going to talk about Last Chance You, the TV series on Netflix. We're going to talk about baseball a little bit. And at the very end of the show, we're going to end the show with a Trevor Lawrence film analysis. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I really hope you enjoyed that Kirk Cousins film analysis breakdown, whatever the hell it was. It just long, took a lot out of me. I, I think it's good. I'm proud of it. I hope you liked it. And good stuff is coming up. Trevor Lawrence, running back, Ezekiel Elliott, a lot of good stuff coming up ahead. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right all right, we are back. Um, you know, I want to really briefly say, if you're listening only on iTunes, you're really missing out on a special treat. Um, <laughs> in between episodes, I've grown somewhat of, uh, some facial hair and I'm, I'm really doing an attempt at a beard. It's going to take a while to get it where I want it to be. But, um, yeah, if you're list- if you're watching on YouTube, you really get the blessing of this crappy, disgusting beard I have. Um, it might be nothing. I don't even know if it'll show up on camera, but Hey, I'm trying. Um, I want to now shift gears into running backs. Running backs are a big topic of discussion all around the NFL right now. And the question is, you know, what is a running back worth in today's NFL? People are saying, you know, running backs are used less than ever. You know, we're throwing the ball more. It's a ton of, you know, all this stuff you're hearing about running backs right now. And I think to really understand the position of the running back, there are three things you got to know. The first thing is this. It's something that NFL scouts have told me. Uh, I know a few of them, they've been very kind to me behind the scenes. A lot of them reach out to me on Instagram, and they like my show, and they they, want to help me a little bit. So they they tell me nice things. And all the NFL scouts I've talked to have said one consistent thing about running backs in the NFL. They all say that there are the top six, seven, or eight running backs in the league, and then everybody else. Those top couple running backs are elite. They are special, really good running backs. And then everybody else is about the same, right? The the word they keep using is most guys are interchangeable. There's not a lot of difference between, you know, number 9 through 32. They're all about the same guy. Most running backs are just guys. But the top couple running backs in the NFL are special because they can do everything. They can pass block. They can contribute as receivers. They can run through arm tackles. They can make people miss in open space. And there are very few guys who can do that. Guys like Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, Saquon Barkley, Le'Veon Bell, whoever else you want to name. Um, And those top couple guys are guys you give money to. Those are the kind of guys you pay. Again, number 9 through 32, the rest of the guys in the league are mostly interchangeable. They're solid. They can have some good runs if their offensive line is good. But they can't do everything. They're not explosive. And most running backs are really only as good as their offensive line. But a couple of them are special, right? A couple guys, the top, like Ezekiel Elliott is a special running back. He's elite. He's different than most. Another thing you need to understand is that running back value is contextual. So first of all, a, an elite level running back can make your offensive line look better, right? He can, by running through arm tackles of the line of scrimmage, even average blocking can still work because If a guy gets a hand on your running back, he runs right through it. It doesn't matter. You don't need to seal blocks as effectively if you have an elite-level running back. And who your quarterback is matters, right? An elite-level quarterback doesn't need a great running back as much as a second-tier quarterback might. You know, Tom Brady doesn't need Ezekiel Elliott. Yes, of course, Tom Brady would love to have Ezekiel Elliott. In fact, I'm sure everybody in the NFL would love to have Ezekiel Elliott on their team. He's an incredible Fantastic running back. But Dak Prescott, the Dallas Cowboys quarterback, benefits from having Ezekiel Elliott's talent tremendously. If you do not have a top five quarterback in the league, if you have a second-tier quarterback, guys like Dak Prescott, guys like Kirk Cousins, then you really want an elite-level running back to help out your offense. It's it's a really big benefit. So who your quarterback is matters. Again, Dak, Kirk, you want an elite-level running back far more than if you're Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. The number three thing you need to understand is this. Actually, you know, before I move on, first of all, using play action matters. People say, you know, we're throwing the ball more than ever, this and that, and yada, yada. Running the ball still matters because what running the ball does, even if it's not incredibly effective, it makes play action passes. When you fake the run, it creates an influence on linebackers, creates an influence on defenders. Running the ball still matters because it makes play action work. It makes your team have balance. Yes, we're throwing the ball more than ever, but you still want to be able to run the football in order to have success deep into the playoffs in the NFL. Now, the third thing I got to know is this. This is just so you understand the running back position in general. Running backs only have a finite amount of wear and tear they can take. Now, I often compare running backs to cars. Uh, you know, an old running back, you know, mileage on a car. So an old veteran running back, you know, a 30 year old running back is similar to a car with 250,000 miles on it. A lot of wear and tear on the engine. I think a better analogy is this. Um, imagine you're leaving your house in the morning with your phone and you're not going to be able to charge it all day. You're going to be out. Like, you're going to the beach, or You're going out and about, you're hiking, whatever. And you're not going to be able to charge your phone from eight in the morning until 10 p.m. at night. You know you got to conserve your battery life. You do a lot of things. You close your apps. You don't really use your flashlight a ton. You turn off Bluetooth. You do all this stuff to limit battery usage and save your battery on your phone. You don't want your running backs putting unnecessary wear and tear on their bodies. The same way you're trying to conserve battery on your phone, you're trying to conserve your running back because there's only so many hits and only so many miles they can take on their legs and their bodies. You know, linemen and running backs get beat up more than any other position in football. There's only so many hits they can take. So when you hear stories with, you know, about elite-level running backs sitting out OTAs and sitting out training camp and preseason, it really doesn't phase me. It's not a concern at all. You want to save your knees. If I have Todd Gurley on my team, I don't want him taking unnecessary wear and tear. So in my opinion, that's kind of the state of NFL running backs right now. People say they're not valuable. I would say that the top six, seven, or eight are elite, and they are valuable. And running the ball still does matter. Despite, you know, Cliff Kingsbury is supposedly going to throw the ball 70 times a game this year. Great. Congratulations. But running the ball still matters because it sets up play action and teams that win Super Bowls. Patriots. The Patriots won the Super Bowl last year. They ran the ball really well. It mattered. Running the ball matters. It helps you in cold weather. It helps you be more than one-dimensional. You want to be able to run the football in the NFL. It does still matter. Now, if you don't have one of the top six, seven, or eight guys, basically everybody else is interchangeable, but those top-level guys are worth it. They make a huge impact on your team, and if you have a second-tier quarterback, you want a running back on your team, an elite-level running back that can help your quarterback and make play action more effective. Running backs still do matter, not as much as they did 20 years ago. But those six, seven, eight special top-level elite running backs are special. They matter. And they still have an impact on the game. And running the football. Even for me. I play quarterback. I play quarterback in college. I love throwing the football. My dream school when I was growing up was Texas Tech. I wanted to throw the ball 70 times a game. And even I can acknowledge running the ball still does matter in the NFL today. So uh, let's take all this information. Let's talk about Ezekiel Elliott. Um... Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, It's mid July right now. There's not a lot going on in the sports world. And when there's not a lot of news, what you have is people that try to create news. You know, the recent stories out there right now are that the Dallas Cowboys are considering trading Ezekiel Elliott. That's a big rumor right now. And for me, this is personally really, really infuriating to see these headlines. Um, You know, it works on paper, right? The Ezekiel Elliott trade kind of makes sense on paper. He's had some off the field trouble in the past. He's now asking for a bigger contract. He's threatening to hold out. But I want to be very, very clear about this. Only an idiot would trade Ezekiel Elliott. If you trade Ezekiel Elliott, man, I don't know what the heck you're doing. Um, Ezekiel Elliott is the best all-around running back in the NFL. Most running backs in the NFL are interchangeable. Right? You're hearing this narrative that running backs don't matter. They're not very valuable. You don't throw the ball very much. I agree with you for the most part. Most running backs in the NFL are not special. They're fine. They're just guys. They're mostly interchangeable. But Ezekiel Elliott is not just a guy. He's a special talent. There's not a lot of Ezekiel Elliots running around in America right now. Really, in the world. Find a guy like Ezekiel Elliott who can play running back at that level, and, and I'll move. A, I'll get to the side. Ezekiel Elliott is special. There's not a lot of guys like that. He can do it all. He can pass block. He can catch. T- passes. He can run through arm tackles. He can break tackles at the line of scrimmage. He can make people miss an open space. Ezekiel Elliott is not. He is not on the trading block. To suggest that is idiotic. If you follow this news at all, you probably can trace uh, what talking head in the sports media world created that rumor. It's just not true. It's a guy who has nothing to talk about and needs to make stuff up. People are bored Talking ahead, sports journalists, whatever the word is. I hate the term journalist. It's not really, it's just not real anymore. People are bored in making stuff up. Ezekiel Elliott is not on the trade trading block. And in fact, I think he's actually massively underpaid. He is the best running back in the entire NFL. He's the best. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And guys like Todd Gurley, Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson are making significantly more money than him, even though he is significantly more talented than them. They're all bringing in around $14 million a year. In 2018, sorry, excuse me, in 2019, this upcoming season, Ezekiel Elite's base salary is $3.8 million with a $4 million signing bonus. That's about a half. That adds up to like almost $8 million. Yeah, the elite level running backs are making fourteen. So the dude carries the ball a ton. In 2016, he had 354 touches. In 2017, he had fewer because he only played 10 games because he had, was suspended. Still had 268 touches. And last season, Ezekiel 8 touched the ball 381 times. That's a lot of hits. And, and often people say that, you know, first of all, again, my point is that Ezekiel 8 touches the ball a ton. He's vital to the Dallas Cowboys offense. But people say he's only good because of his offensive line, and that is simply not true. He has a good offensive line. I'm not saying he's not. He doesn't. But watch Ezekiel Elliott hurdle a defender against the Philadelphia Eagles and tell me that was his offensive line. It's not. He's explosive. He does stuff beyond what his offensive line can do for him. And he makes his offensive line better. He runs through arm tackles at the line of scrimmage. If you don't get a perfect block and you don't perfectly seal your defender and a guy gets an arm on Ezekiel Elliott, it doesn't matter because he runs right through it. He's powerful. He is. He can win a race. He can make you miss in the open field. He can run you over. He can catch passes. He can pass block. Ezekiel Elliott, by far, is the best running back in the NFL. And anybody considering trading him is idiotic. It's stupid. He's not on the trading block. It's a rumor people made up because they have nothing else to talk about. Man, I, I think you don't trade him you pay Ezekiel Elliott and you give him the long term contract that he is worth. Absolutely, 100% for sure. Ezekiel Elliott is 24 years old right now. At least he will be 24 years old probably by the time this video comes out because he turns. Uh, July 22nd is his birthday. So this upcoming season, he'll be 24 years old. He still has years left in his career. I'd give him a four year contract worth $14 million a year. Fully guaranteed in a maybe. Maybe if you make it fully guaranteed, he'll take less money. That'll take less against the salary cap. I don't want to pay Ezekiel Elliott eighteen million dollars. He is worth, you know, based on market value, he is that much better than Todd Gurley and the other people making fourteen million dollars a year. But I'm not comfortable paying a running back that much. But what I would do is say, hey, here's a four year deal, fourteen million dollars a year, forty million. Sorry, fourteen million dollars fully guaranteed every year. The entire contract fully guaranteed. And maybe it will take it will allow him to take less money and take a competitive price compared to other running backs in the NFL. You want to save yourself from cap room, but let me be very clear. Ezekiel Elliott helps the Dallas Cowboys win football games. Very few running backs make an impact on football games the same way Ezekiel Elliott does. He makes the offensive line look better, he catches passes, and he helps the Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott. He really does. He pass blocks but he also forces teams to put more defenders around the line of scrimmage to stop the Cowboys' running game. This allows wide receivers to have better matchups downfield and helps Dak Prescott. He helps the Cowboys to play action. The Cowboys are better for him. Absolutely. The Dallas Cowboys should not only keep Ezekiel, they should pay him what he's worth. Give him a four-year deal, $14 million a year. Give him a competitive price because he is far and away not only the best running back in the NFL, He's a big reason why the Dallas Cowboys have had a lot of success in recent years on offense and a big reason why Dak Prescott is currently a Dallas Cowboys starting quarterback. They are a tandem. They work together. They need both of them. And the Cowboys need Ezekiel Elliott. He has a lot of leverage. They should pay him and give him a long-term contract. Okay, Um, so I've made it clear before. I'm going to say it again. Most running backs in the NFL are interchangeable. There's like the top... Six, seven, or eight guys, they're elite, they're special, they can do everything. Those top six, seven, eight, or eight guys, you pay them. You pay them because they are elite, special running backs, and they are the only running backs you give long, big con- long-term big, long big contracts to. So the Chargers running back, Melvin Gordon, is holding out. He wants a new contract. And uh, he feels like he deserves to be paid more. He's threatening to, he says he's not going to go to training camp. And he wants to be traded if he doesn't get a new contract. And uh, first of all, by the way, I, I think Melvin Gordon likes the team. Clearly, he likes San Diego, or sorry, excuse me, LA. He likes the Chargers. Wow, it's that's a really bad miss. The point is this. <laughs> um, he likes the Chargers. I think this idea is coming from his agent. His agency's an area and a moment where he can capitalize on the moment and get more money. But I, I don't think... I don't get the sense that Melvin Gordon is not a team player. I think he likes his team. He's made it clear he wants to be at the Chargers. He just wants a bigger contract. Makes sense to me. So the question you need to ask yourself is is Melvin Gordon one of the best running backs in the NFL? Is he in that top 6, 7 or 8 guys? You know, first of all, yes, I believe he is an elite level running back. He is in that top top couple running backs in the NFL. Now, he is also on the lower half of all the elite running backs in the NFL, he's on the lower half of that spectrum. He's closer to number eight than he is to number one. But he's really versatile. What he can do is he can put his head down. He can break tackles in the line of scrimmage. He can pass block. He can make guys miss an open field, although I will acknowledge Melvin Gordon is not the kind of, that's maybe his weakest strength, his weakest ability is making guys miss an open field. And the Chargers also use him a ton. They line him up outside as a wide receiver. They use him in the passing game a lot. Um, Melvin Gordon can do it all. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I, you know, should you pay him? Yeah, I I would pay Melvin Gordon. Here's my one concern with the Chargers running back Melvin Gordon. He's really, really talented. I I love his ability, but he's also been in the NFL for four years and only played in all 16 games one time in that four year stretch. The The 2017 season. Is the only time Melvin Gordon played an entire season. Now, last year he missed four games. And uh, it's also, you know, the Chargers went 4-0 and without him. So it looks like on paper, wow, the Chargers can win without Melvin Gordon. They'd be fine. And I do acknowledge, you know, they do, they would be okay. They have another running back, Austin Eckler, who is a, a solid professional running back. When I talk about guys who are, you know, most NFL running backs are interchangeable. He's one of those guys. He's a solid running back who can start. But you really you put him on the Vikings, put him on, you know mix him up with Dalvin Cook. He's an interchangeable running back with most in the league. Um, you know he's not Austin Eckler. People are calling for we don't need Melvin Gordon. We have Austin Eckler. Uh, there's a there's a pretty big talent discrepancy between Melvin Gordon and Austin Eckler. I like Austin Eckler, solid running back, great story, really cool guy. Um, Melvin Gordon is elite though. Melvin Gordon is the next level above him. And so you know. The Chargers have to decide if they want to make Austin Eckler, their number two running back, their full-time running back. They would be okay. I acknowledge, right? He's a, a guy who could start on other teams. He's a solid running back. They would be okay without Melvin Gordon. The Chargers would. But what they would miss out on is the extra yards he produces, the yards after contact, the, the breaking tackles, the yards in the line of scrimmage where he breaks the tackle line of scrimmage and runs for eight yards. I absolutely would pay Melvin Gordon. I know, look, I've given a mixed signal because they'd be okay without him. They would, but I don't think they'd get as much. And I think their quarterback would suffer without him. I think their quarterback, they'd get fewer yards after contact and fewer yards per carry without Melvin Gordon. Uh, Now, I believe Melvin Gordon would be a fool to miss out this year. He should not. He's threatening to hold out. I think that'd be a massive mistake. Melvin Gordon should get paid. Uh, Do not do what Le'Veon Bell did. Le'Veon Bell last year, the former Steelers running back, sat out, and didn't get paid. And uh, I, I, Melvin Gordon shouldn't do that. First of all, they can fine him every day he's not there. He's going to lose a lot of money if he doesn't play and doesn't show up. But I, if I'm the Chargers, I would pay Melvin Gordon. I would give him a long-term contract. Here's what I would do. I would not give him a massive contract. Right now, he's going to make $5.6 million in 2019. Um, he doesn't have a deal for 2019, uh, You know, after this year at least. He doesn't have a deal after this year. And I don't blame Melvin Gordon at all for wanting an extension. He got hurt last year. He wants guaranteed money in the future. And, you know, the running back position is very clear. You get hurt a lot. It's, you, I, I would want a running back. If I was a running back, I would want money as soon as possible. I would want to be locked down for my future. So this is where it gets dicey. And this is where you got to have to have, uh, you know, some cooperation from Melvin Gordon. I would not pay Melvin Gordon as much money as I would Todd Gurley or Ezekiel Elliott or even Saquon Barkley, here's what I would pay Melvin Gordon. I would pay Melvin Gordon eight to eight point five million dollars a year, and I'd give him a four year contract. Right? He deserves a raise from what he's making right now, but he doesn't deserve much more than what I just said. Eight to maybe nine million, nine million max, so not more than nine million, but eight and a half, eight million. That's what I would pay Melvin Gordon. And if Melvin Gordon is offered that contract, he should take it, absolutely, take it and run with it because that is exactly what he's worth. He's not worth Todd Gurley money. He's certainly not worth Ezekiel Elliott money, but he's definitely worth more money than most running backs in the NFL, right? He's an elite level running back. He's in that top six, seven or eight guys. So I would pay Melvin Gordon eight to $8.5 million a year, give him a four-year contract and he would be incredibly stupid to reject it. He's an elite running back. But of that elite group of running backs in the NFL, the only couple guys you pay, he's at the bottom end of the spectrum, and he needs to know his place. Melvin Gordon should take a contract if they offer him a contract for $8 million a year. Absolutely, he should take it and and run with the money. Okay. Um, Around the time of the 2018 NFL draft, I was really skeptical of a wide receiver named DK Metcalf. And for good reason, by the way. I mean, the guy was being massively, massively overhyped. The media were saying he was a top ten pick, which was whew, ridiculous. Uh, there was a big divide between the way reporters and the media saw DK Metcalf and the way NFL scouts and NFL evaluators saw DK Metcalf. Uh, friends of mine, a couple scouts in the NFL, and uh, you know, a couple buddies. You know, sorry, one, um, one of my best friends played D one wide receiver. Um, they all told me. This guy's not a top 10 pick. And here's how I knew there was a problem. All my friends were telling me he's not a top 10 pick. The media was telling me he is, but the media was saying this. Everyone on TV kept talking about how, and really everyone writing articles, everybody covering the NFL in general kept talking about how DK Metcalf has this giant muscle mass and all this weight and how strong he is and how great his body is. And no one is really talking about his ability on the field. They were getting caught up in the numbers and the nuance of how he looked. And in the end, here's what happened. He was drafted number 64 overall by the Seattle Seahawks, uh, which is a respectable draft pick, right? That's the second round of the draft. That's awesome. Uh, It is also, by the way, the very last pick of the second round. But, you know, the media talked about him as a top 10 pick. And in reality, the NFL saw him for what he really was, a guy who's fine, who is, you know, exactly where he picked is where he should have been picked. The last pick in the second round. That sounds about right to me. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I watched a lot of film on NFL teams. I watched, you know, I was doing the, I was in the process of evaluating the Vikings running game, trying to figure out why the Vikings suck at running. And, you know, I, one of the teams I did a lot of research into is the Seattle Seahawks, trying to figure out why what the Seattle Seahawks did better than the Vikings. And And, and in that process, I learned a lot about how the Seahawks operate. And one thing that stood out to me is that with the Seahawks, DK Metcalf went to a perfect, perfect team for him. There are two reasons for me why he's a great fit with the Seahawks. Number one is a bit of a reach, I admit it. Um, But the Seahawks offense is built around running the football. DK Metcalf has a huge frame. He's a huge dude. And I believe if they can teach him how to block, he could make a big impact in the Seahawks running game blocking on the outside for their running game. I really believe that. Now, the the number two reason, though, is the real reason why I believe D.K. Metcalf is a great fit for the Seattle Seahawks. Here's how the Seahawks operate. They heavily run the ball. They pound it down the throat of the teams they play. They run the ball, they run the ball, they run the ball, they run the ball. Then they use play action. They fake the run and throw the ball deep downfield. I cannot think of a better role For DK Metcalf than being the Seattle Seahawks' deep threat. I really can't. They love to take shots downfield. That's what he's best at. Um, Now, I admit, I don't like DK's ability running routes. He has poor lateral movement. He's not a good technical route runner. He's really raw. But undoubtedly, his best trait is running in a straight line. He's good at getting open, running in a straight line. And the way the Seahawks use play action will create good matchups for him downfield. Uh, look, DK Metcalf was not a top 10 pick. He never should have been even talked about as a top 10 pick, but I see him having some really nice catches down the road for the Seattle Seahawks this season. Um, I believe he went to a perfect spot and I think the Seattle Seahawks are a great fit for DK Metcalf. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder, then we'll take a break. Um, whoo, um, the Oklahoma City Thunder traded away their star franchise player. Russell Westbrook uh, has left the Thunder. He's now a member of the Houston Rockets. And, and first of all, I love this trade all around. From OKC's perspective, the Thunder are rebuilding. Uh, you know they, they have seen Russell Westbrook by himself as the only star on a the team. They know that there's a limited ceiling with that roster. When he's by himself, he can't win a lot. He maybe makes it to the playoffs. He won an MVP once that way. But there's a really limited ceiling with Russell Westbrook as the only star on your team. And the Thunder have a giant collection of draft picks. They decided we're going to rebuild and went all in on it. I like it. I like the move. Now, from the Rockets perspective, I really, really like the trade for Russell Westbrook, even though first, by the way, I think this trade is going to go terribly. I think that Russell Westbrook and James Harden getting together in Houston is going to be an awful, awful match. Um, These are two dominant ball handlers. There's only one basketball for the two of them. And I see a collision course for disaster. But uh, not only as a fan do I like it. I love chaos. I think it's going to be fun to watch. Um, I think that even though I don't believe in the move, even though I think the Rockets are destined for a train wreck, I do think the trade was the right thing for the Rockets to do. The Rockets had to change something. Their current configuration as a team had hit its ceiling. They had you know, Chris Paul, who's getting older or not, is you know, declining quickly. Chris Paul and James Harden it just had hit a ceiling, wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, the Rockets had to make a change of some kind. So trading Chris Paul for um, Russell Westbrook felt kind of like a Hail Mary for the Rockets. But I, again, I think you had to change something. There are, you know, they, they had to make some kind of change. They did. I applaud the Rockets for making a change. Again, I want to be very clear. I think Russell Westbrook and James Harden is a terrible match. I think they're going to play horribly together, and I don't think they're going to succeed. I think, again, they're two guys that really want the basketball in their hands, and I don't think that's going to work well together. There's going to be a lot of drama, but um, I do like the trade in general. Now, here are the details of the trade. The Rockets got Russell Westbrook, a point guard, former MVP, an eight-time All-Star, and that's all that the Rockets got. The Oklahoma City Thunder got Chris Paul, a nine-time All-Star, but a guy who's in his mid-30s. Um, In the last two seasons, only played 58 games in each of the last two years. Um, So they had an aging all-star, Chris Paul, who's really kind of, is on the back end, you know, the back nine. The Thunder also got, this is why they made the trade, two future first round picks and two uh, pick swaps. So, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder don't really want Chris Paul. They don't care. Uh, Houston had to include him in the trade to get rid of his salary and dump his contract. But Oklahoma City really got even more draft picks from him. That's why they made this trade happen. That's why they wanted the trade to happen. Oklahoma City is completely rebuilding. Um, and, you know, they're trying to, I think they're also trying to trade away Chris Paul. Just making a deal apparently has been really tough because no one seems to want him. Um, and after all the deals the Thunder have made, the Thunder could have as many as 13 first round draft picks in the next seven NBA drafts. Uh, that's unbelievable. It's, it's very clear the Thunder are rebuilding. Like I support it. I think Russell Westbrook's aging. I can't believe they were able to trade him away and trick someone into trading for him. I really like the direction the Thunder are headed in. I think they're doing the right thing and rebuilding. Now the Houston Rockets moving forward. Uh again, I don't have much faith. I think it's gonna be funny to watch two guys struggle over the basketball and have, you know, irritation with I'm not getting enough shots or enough touches or not handling the ball as much. I, I just really think it's gonna be a problem for them coming up. I think there's drama coming for the Houston Rockets, but I'm here for it. I think it's going to be fun to watch. And I cannot wait to watch the drama unfold next year in Houston. Uh, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we have four topics left. We're going to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. We're going to talk about Last Chance You, the TV show on Netflix. We're going to talk about baseball. And we will end the show with a Trevor Lawrence, the Clemson quarterback, a Trevor Lawrence film analysis. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers have made a number of changes this NBA offseason to improve their roster. In my opinion, their roster is better today than it was uh, at the end of last year. I believe now, if you ask me, the 76ers are the best team in the NBA's Eastern Conference. Uh, last year, they went and they made the playoffs. Last year, they lost in seven games to the Toronto Raptors in the game to get into the Eastern Conference Finals. They lost on the final shot, rattled in. Uh, and in my opinion, if they'd won that game instead of lost, they would have probably won the NBA Finals. Like they were really good. So that team that had a chance and potentially could have won the finals last year, the 76ers, in my opinion, is even better now today than they were when they lost in the playoffs last year. So who did they, what, what happened, what changes have occurred? The 76ers lost Jimmy Butler to the Miami Heat. They lost JJ Redick to the New Orleans Pelicans. But it's also they also added some players. In the process of losing and, and getting rid of Jimmy Butler, they added Josh Richardson, uh, who's a cheaper building star and a guy, Josh Richardson, who I think b- brings an impact and, and will make a big impact on their defense in Philadelphia. Another player they added is Al Horford. They signed Al Horford to a four-year deal worth $109 million. Now, he is not a direct replacement for Jimmy Butler, uh, but I do think the leadership he brings to the table will be really good for Philadelphia's locker room. This guy's a five-time All-Star. He's been in the league for 12 years. And each of the 12 seasons he's made, uh, in, been in the league, he made it to the playoffs. That's 12 years and the playoffs 12 times. That's really impressive to me. Uh, and what he brings to their locker room is maturity, stability, and his experience. I mean, being there before, being in the playoffs that many times, he's going to understand how to handle that situation. It can help the younger core guys Philadelphia has in their locker room. And I think he's got a lot of potential to succeed. He's got a lot of good players around him. Um, and, and I really think that Al Horford can make some shots late in games if they need him to. Uh, I like him. Another thing the 76ers did is re sign Tobias Harris. They gave him a max contract, five years worth $180 million. Um, like it's, he's not your typical max player. And typically a max player is the face of your franchise, guys like Damian Lillard in Portland who is the leader in the locker room. He is the guy who takes the final shot for your franchise. He is the superstar, the guy who sells tickets and lots of merchandise. And Tobias Harris isn't exactly all that, right? He's not your typical max contract star. Uh, Although I will say he is their best three-point shooter as of right now. Now, it's unconventional to give a guy like Tobias Harris a max contract, but the situation, I think, warranted it. Uh, Tobias Harris had a lot of leverage over Philadelphia. They gave up a lot in a trade for him last year. You know, last year, the 76ers essentially gave up, you know, Landry chamette a young rookie, a building star, and gave up two first-round draft picks to get Tobias Harris from the Clippers. Um, they could not afford to let him walk away. They just couldn't. And I, I personally, I know it's unconventional, I'm personally glad they kept him around. I think he's, I don't know that he's, he might be, I think he's overpaid for sure, but uh, I think he's worth keeping and really helps their locker room move forward. Um, you know, I want you to, I want to name the starting five next year for the 76ers just listen to these numbers and listen to the people they have working for them and, and I really like what they got going on they have Ben Simmons who's 6 foot 10 with a 7 foot wingspan They have Joel Embiid who's 7 feet tall with a 7 foot 6 wingspan they have Al Horford who's 6 foot 10 with a 7 foot 1 wingspan they have Tobias Harris 6 foot 9 feet tall with a wingspan of six eleven, and Josh Richardson only 6 foot 6 I know not very tall but has a wingspan of 6 foot 10 my point is this. The 76ers have an incredibly long, lanky defense. They're going to be killers on defense because their length is outrageous. I really like what they can do, and they're going to be hard to score on. Um, I'm excited to watch that next year for the 76ers. They also gave Ben Simmons a max contract. They gave him a contract extension. Uh, five years, $170 million. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to say, right? That's He's the face of your franchise, no matter Ben Simmons, I think, was always going to get this contract. It's not a surprise that he he did. Uh, Now, the big question to me is, will Ben Simmons develop a jump shot? To me, it's all confidence. Uh, A friend of mine got very sick in the last year. She lost her voice completely for like 35 days, couldn't talk, and had to learn a completely new way to speak. Uh, Instead of speaking with her throat, she had to learn to speak with the front of her mouth. I, I speak very heavily with my throat. I can't imagine changing the way I would speak. Um, and you know, doing that hurt her confidence. Uh, there was an in-between phase. She's in in it right now. She's in an in-between phase where she can speak like the old way she used to with her throat, but she's also not great at speaking in the front of her mouth. So she's not really good at either. And that in-between phase where you're still learning and still working and making tweaks. Uh, I mean, nothing feels right. You just completely lack confidence. I think it's the exact same thing going on with Ben Simmons and his jump shot. You see videos of Ben Simmons. He can make jump shots, right? He's, he can shoot. The issue is confidence. You know, when you make your, you know, another example is if you change the throwing motion. Your old, if you change the throwing motion, your old throwing motion, there's a while where it doesn't feel right. The new throwing motion doesn't feel right. Nothing feels right at all. I think that's where Ben Simmons is. And he's just not confident or comfortable enough to make consistent jump shots in games playing basketball. Um, now, I believe even without Ben Simmons having a jump shot, the 76ers improved. They have a scary defense. Al Horford's going to make shots in big moments. Uh, their locker room has stability with Jim, Jimmy Butler gone. They added Al. Hor- I, I really like the moves that the 76ers made. So I think right now the 76ers are better. They are the favorite in the Eastern Conference. But man, if Ben Simmons can indeed develop a jump shot, whew, get out of the way. I think Ben Simmons, if he can shoot, that team is going to win a championship. I really, I really like what they got going on in Philadelphia. I think they have a chance to win a, a championship, especially if Ben Simmons can develop any kind of a jump shot at all. Oh man, uh, we're going to see some special things take place in Philadelphia. <sighs> <sighs> I'm like, you know, I think I'm anxious to finish this. Uh, we're at two hours and twelve minutes recording. Uh, I took a break for a while and I just left it running. So I it's this it's four o'clock on Saturday. I wanted to get this out Saturday morning. I, I think I want to get this done. Um, I want to now shift gears to Last Chance U. Last Chance U is a show on Netflix. Um, season four just came out. And if you don't know the show, it's a show where a documentary crew follows a junior college football team around. And I, I love the show. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. I, you know, I love... You know, BBC, Sherlock Holmes, and Last Chance You. They're my two favorite television shows. And I, I eat it up. It's like crack. I just, I love them so very much. I can't stop watching once I start. And uh, there are so many lessons you can learn while watching Last Chance You. If you haven't, I recommend it. I'm not going to spoil anything. I just think that, you know, you should watch if you get a chance to. Um, it's just a, a bunch of guys documenting their mistakes. You know, the viewers get a chance to watch and learn from these guys who... You know, oh, man, just make poor decisions. I mean, the last chance you every season is really, for me, heartbreaking to watch. And the number one the number one thing you see recurring in the show is coaches, players, everybody, people who do not have the mental toughness to handle things going wrong. And, you know, I want to be very clear here. You know, I, I know the optics on what I just said sound bad. I just said that a bunch of guys can't handle when things go wrong. Uh, Here's my background. Growing up, my family was homeless at one point. I lived in a mobile home. My brother died three years ago. Um, I dropped out of college for a while. Um, Please nobody comment that I don't understand what it's like to struggle. I know that's... I I don't want to hear that. I I don't. Um, To say that means you don't know who I am. When you watch Last Chance you. so many times guys just lose it. They don't have the emotional and mental maturity to handle the things going on in their lives. They yell, they freak out, they self-sabotage, they screw up, they fall apart, they let the emotion get the best of them. And uh, you know, it's great television. It's also really heartbreaking to watch. And the lesson when you watch Last Chance U to me is that so much of sports is mental. No matter how talented you are, um, if you don't have the discipline or the mental toughness you need, you're going to have problems. And so many guys on that TV show, uh, just which is real, by the way. The show is rich, documenting real lives, real stories. I think that's why it's at times why it's so good and why sometimes it's so hard to watch. um, Is these are real people making real mistakes. I mean, there's a situation where guys are partying the night before a game and it costs them. Or at one point, uh, the coach tells a quarterback to go in the game, and the kid argues. The kid says, "No, you didn't want me earlier. Why would you want me now?" And it's like, dude, are you kidding me? the The kid clearly doesn't understand. If you get a chance to be on the field, go play. Don't argue. Look at that as your opportunity. And so many times, it's just guys losing their losing their heads, man. It's it's a mess. Uh, So I hope people watching understand. People watching this video right now, if you're listening to me right now, please understand. You know, bad things happen. You're gonna throw interceptions. You're gonna drop passes. You're gonna miss shots you're going to strike out. You can't let it destroy you. You can't let bad moments. I'm not saying you should be comfortable with failure. Like failure is not great. No one should celebrate failure at all, but you can't lose your head. You can't yell. You shouldn't freak out, get all riled up and emotionally discombobulated because something goes wrong. That's life. That's football. That's sports. That's why I love I think sports are such a great analogy for life. That's why I try to make as many analogies to real life as I possibly can because sports is the ultimate analogy for real life. Bad things happen. Your brother might die. Your parents might get divorced. You might live in a mobile. You might be homeless. Things happen go wrong all the time. And, you know, you don't want to be the guy who falls apart when things go wrong. I want to be a part of a team that has a lot of mental toughness. I don't want to be with guys who do not fall apart. I want to be with guys who can handle things not going the way they're planned. And, you know, I really think that's the lesson of Last Chance You, If you watch the show, I think you should. I recommend it. It's a great television show. And just take note of all the moments where guys cannot handle bad things going on. Coaches, players, everybody. People seem unable to handle when things go wrong. It takes a lot of maybe emotional maturity. I'm not sure, but it's not. there's not an example of that on this that show. It's just a mess. Um, Now, the final thing I want to say, I want to talk about two characters in the show. Um, The coach on the show was named Jason Brown. And, uh, man, he's a mess. Uh, He's constantly yelling. He's bickering. He's complaining all the time about his coaches. He pays really poor attention to detail. He's not the kind of guy uh, I would want to play for at all. And uh, I just, I, I truly believe Independence Community College is better off now without their old head coach, Jason Brown. Um, now, you got to respect what he did, right? He did a lot of stuff to kickstart that program and built offices and got recruits in there. We got a field and yada, yada. It seems like, you know, he resurrected the program, but I think independence got away from that coach at about the right time. It's time for them to move on to the newer coach who can take advantage of the changes that Jason Brown made. Um, now, the last thing I want to say is that Malik Henry, uh, a quarterback, appeared... Uh, in season three and season four. In season three, he was a mess. He was all over the place, yelling, screaming, freaking out. Um, Now, maybe he was like that season four and they just didn't portray him very much. Who really knows? But season three, Malik Henry was a disaster. And season four, he looked a lot more composed. Um, He he did walk on at Nevada. And I think it's possible that Malik Henry, the quarterback we saw in season three of Last Chance U, either has grown up or will continue to grow up and he could find some success down the road. I'm going to follow Malik Henry. I'm really curious. Uh, he's at Nevada, competing for a starting job. He looked really good in their spring game, and uh, I think he's just worth watching. He may, you know some people do change. It's hard. It takes a lot of work. It's possible. Malik Henry, you know, all the crap he went through and being embarrassed on national TV and not getting any, you know, not having any offers and all this stuff. It's very possible that. That struggle and that hardship, look, he's still got a big ego, still thinks really highly of himself, as look, most quarterbacks do. Any good quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers, I'm sure, thinks he's a really good quarterback. Um, but it's also possible that in some regards, Malik Henry has matured. And I think people should give him an opportunity to prove that. Maybe he did. Maybe not. Maybe he's a mess still. But I have an open mind about Malik Henry. And it's, it is possible that the kid just went through some crap and took a year and grew up a little bit. And I'm very curious to watch Malik Henry moving forward. Again, the final lesson, if you're watching Last Chance you, it's a great show, highly recommend it. Pay attention to guys who don't have mental toughness. How often guys self-sabotage, how often guys can't handle bad things going wrong. Learn from their mistakes and please be better than the guys on that TV show. Please do better. Learn from your mistakes and don't lose your head if things go wrong and things don't go according to plan. That is just how life is. Things don't always go to plan. Accept it, move on, do the very best you can in your life. Okay, uh, two topics left I want to talk about. First one is this. Um, Man, uh, despite contrary belief, people don't seem to believe this about me at all. I love watching baseball. I, I know that people seem to think I only talk about football. It's not true. Baseball, love it. I really, I go to, you know, my hometown of Portland, Oregon, we have. Uh, a small wood bat team named the Portland Pickles. And I, I love going to their games. You know, me, my girlfriend, some friends get a beer, I get a pickle on a stick. We yell and just have fun. It's just a great time. I love it. Um, I, I really, I really genuinely love going to baseball games. It's the time of my life. Um, And, uh, you know, just yesterday while I was working on the show, I was writing the show, had the Dodgers and Phillies on YouTube in the background watching it just because the whole game was being streamed. I loved it. Um, And, you know, there's a, a, a rap I get, uh, people think seem to think me on Strong Opinion Sports that I hate baseball. People, It's a secret. Like People don't understand. Dude, I love baseball. Baseball is one of my favorite sports. I enjoy watching baseball a lot. I uh, played as a kid. I used to watch every day with my grandpa when I would go visit him in the summer. Um, and I love playoff baseball. And baseball matters, it's amazing. I, I really, really, I, I love, I love the World Series. I, I love when, you're like, there's a, a moment in baseball where... Uh, you know, the, the tying run is on second base and you're like, oh, and every pitch matters because, you know, even a base hit could get the guy to home plate. Um, and I get comments all the time, a lot of angry messages from people, either on YouTube or on Instagram or whatever. Uh, people are saying, why is strong opinion sports just a football show? Now, you don't cover baseball. Why do you never cover baseball? And first of all, I, I do talk about baseball. I, I do. I, I, I don't always do breakouts of baseball, but if you listen to my full podcast, there are, Moments where I talk about baseball. I also have a playlist, an entire playlist dedicated to baseball. Not very many videos, admittedly, but I do talk. I, baseball is a sport I cover. <sighs> Here's a problem I have with baseball. Uh, by the way, I want to read you a headline the other day at Red in Baseball. This is a headline, a, a real serious headline. And at the time, this was the number one trending Major League Baseball headline in America when I ran into it. The headline says this. Pete Alonzo's charming English muffin quote line, like most things in life, was a sham. English muffins? Guys, I don't care. Baseball seems to repeatedly miss the mark and not understand the things I find interesting and things that most people find interesting. You know, football and basketball have really leaned into drama. It's fun. I love it. There's rumors all the time. And I, we don't get that in baseball. The headlines of baseball don't really grab my attention. They don't interest me that much. Uh, I try, I really do. But when you have conversations with people about baseball, it's always about stats. This guy's on base percentage. This guy's batting percentage. This guy's in a slump. Look at the numbers. Numbers, 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 numbers. You're getting hit over the head with them. And I, frankly, you know, the whole sport of baseball revolves around stats. And I, I'm not a stat head. I don't care. Uh, When the main storyline is statistics, I get bored. I do. It's not why I watch sports. It's not why I love sports. Uh, I don't watch sports because I'm like, man, the numbers. Ooh. I'm, I'm not that kind of – I'm not a financial analyst. I'm not a, a, an accountant. I don't care about numbers. Um, I, I, I think it, numbers are a great way to help your argument if your argument is about something else. But, again, the minute the numbers are the entire story, I get bored. And so for all you people who get mad I don't cover baseball – Um, I'm asking you, please send me the baseball stories that interest you, right? If you want to hear me talk about baseball, instead of just commenting that you're mad I don't cover baseball, send me links. Follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is at Zach Schalmer. Z-A-C-S-H-O-M-L-E-R on Instagram. Send me direct messages. Send me, hey, I found a link. Here's a story about baseball I want you to cover. Because otherwise, I don't, Look, when Odell Beckham Jr. gets a quote for the Cleveland Browns, I get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages from people asking me to talk about it. Ezekiel Elliott's being rumored in the trade block. I get, I got like a thousand messages about it. I don't get messages about baseball because, and either in my belief, either the narratives suck and no one cares, and people are just mad I'm not creating BS about baseball, or I'm not, like, something's wrong here. So I'm asking you, please, you know, I've talked about baseball before. I like baseball. It's one of my favorites. It's my favorite sport to watch live. I love it. Go with my friends. We have a beer. It's awesome. I've covered Bryce Harper's contract. I covered Manny Machado's contract. I talked about automated strike zones. There's a baseball playlist on my channel. I like baseball. I want to talk more about baseball. And if you want me to talk about baseball, send me things you want me to talk about. Send me links. Send me articles. Send me stories. And I'll, I'll pick and choose. I'm not going to talk about the stats. I don't care about the stats. But I love, I love playoff baseball. You guys don't understand, you know, when baseball matters, it's so fun. There's tension. I love it. Mid-July, there's not a lot of tension. There's so many games in baseball. I don't even know how to cover it. Because the minute you talk about one story, uh, about the time I record a podcast, it's five days ago and it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. So again, I'm asking you baseball people, you want me to talk about baseball, please send me your stories. I have an open mind. I'm willing to talk about baseball. I love the sport. I'm a big fan. I go to baseball games. Um, but I, uh, if you want me to talk about it, send me the stories you want me to talk about. Don't just comment. Why don't you talk about baseball? Well, what do you want me to talk about? Cause I have an open mind. I'm willing to do it. If you want me to, um, now one storyline recently grabbed my attention in baseball. It feels like a cheap shot, but whatever. Um, baseball needs to mandate netting along the first and third base lines. It's, it's gotta happen, right? You gotta have, you know, it should be necessary for all major league baseball teams to have netting. Down the baselines in their stadiums, from home plate all the way to the foul pole. Right now, I go to my tiny little wood bat league team in Portland. Like I think two thousand people are in attendance at their games. The Portland Pickles, tiny little bit. You've never heard of the Portland Pickles? Their mascot looks like pickle Rick. It's hilarious and horrifying. Uh, I I love it so much. Um, (laughs) Most major league baseball teams do not have fencing or do not have a a fence from home plate all the way down to the foul pole. Guess what the Portland Pickles have? The freaking Portland Pickles have a fence to protect their fans of their games from getting hit in the head and foul by foul balls. Um, The Major League Baseball commissioner, the guy in charge of the MLB, basically said he didn't want to do that kind of project midseason as if it's some complicated construction project to put up a net to protect fans. Uh, People are getting hurt. People are getting hit in the head. And I, I think baseball is just being lazy. You know, I watch... I love watching baseball with my friends with, you know, I have a beer, we joke around, we, it's not all just about baseball. We like to enjoy the, a whole experience together and we screw around. And I'll be honest, like some people say that, you know, some people are kind of hard asses about it. They say, well, if you don't want to get hit by a baseball in a baseball game, pay attention to the game. And, and I get where they're coming from, but that's not just how baseball works. There's a lot of slowdown. There's a lot of stoppage and I, I'm down for it. I love going to baseball games. But I want to be able to make a joke with my friend and turn my head to the game, away from the game for a second, and not be in danger of getting pegged in the forehead. Uh, Not to mention, you bring your little kid to a game and they get hit in the head. A four year old girl got hit in the head. It's horrifying. It's not, I don't know. Um, I don't go to baseball games to constantly be on edge about getting hit in the head by a foul ball. It's not why I like baseball. I go to baseball games because I like to relax, drink a beer, joke around with my friends, watch a good finish in baseball. It's enjoyable. I love watching baseball. Um, And I really believe baseball, at least Major League Baseball, needs to have netting as soon as humanly possible. They need to put netting all down the baselines of their stadiums to protect fans because people go, there's a great ESPN video about it. People are getting hit in the head. People are getting hurt. A woman died last year because she got hit by a foul ball. Baseball needs to protect their fans. And I'm not talking about pop-ups. You hit a pop-up, everyone has time to react. I'm talking about really hard line drives that peg people in the head it's horrible and when you see a baseball player hit a foul ball a really hard line drive and it hits a kid that's four years old and hurts the kid the baseball player doesn't feel good about that the guy that hit the ball feels horrible too make the players feel better make the fans feel safer baseball major league baseball needs netting down the baselines from home plate all the way down to the foul pole that's what needs to happen and that's what I'm calling for in this video Um, and again, I want to repeat one more thing. If you want me to talk more about baseball, please, for the love of God, instead of just complaining, I don't talk about it enough. I almost hit that. I almost hit the camera. Uh, please tell me what topics you want me to cover in the world of baseball. I'm happy to, I love baseball. It's one of my favorite sports, but I, you know, Hey, you want me to cover it. Tell me what you want me to talk about. Cause right now I'm trying and i not a lot grabbing my attention. Okay. Uh, final topic of the day. We're only uh, two hours and 29 minutes into recording. I I have no idea how long this podcast is going to be. I have no idea how long the Kirk Cousins segment is going to (laughs) be. Let's talk about Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback at Clemson. So Trevor Lawrence dominated last year as a freshman at Clemson. And uh, here's what really, really impresses me about Trevor Lawrence. Look, obviously Trevor has NFL arm talent. He can make all the throws. He's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and his arm, by the way, is only going to get better over time. As the years go on in college, his arm is going to get better and better and better. But what's more impressive to me than his arm talent or accuracy or arm strength or any of it is his decision making. Trevor Lawrence's decision making is why Clemson chose him over Kelly Bryant and why he shredded Alabama. Like he's human. He occasionally misses throws, but when his incompletions happen, they usually happen because he was inaccurate. They're rarely because he made a bad decision. Usually, Trevor Lawrence's missed completions are because he made a physical error. Again, he rarely makes a mental error. That is what I'm most impressed with when I watch Trevor Lawrence on tape. And no joke, by the way. I'm not even kidding. He made one bad decision during the entire national championship game against Alabama. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. He tried to complete a screen pass that wasn't there. He should have just thrown the ball in the dirt instead of forcing it to the receiver. One play, one mental mistake the entire game. Otherwise, Trevor Lawrence batted 1,000. You know how rare that is for a college quarterback to do, let alone a true freshman in college? Unbelievable. Look, he makes great throws. He's a master of back shoulder fades. He does a lot of good stuff. But Trevor Lawrence's mind, that is his strength. He doesn't force the ball into coverage. He's very disciplined. Now, granted, look, the guy has a lot of great players around him. He has receivers making great catches. He's got a really good offensive line. He was only sacked 11 times last year. But the one thing you cannot take away from Trevor Lawrence is his decision-making. His decision-making is impeccable. And I I, I love the guy, man. He's a future number one overall pick. I'm all on board. He's really, really good. Uh, And, and man, in fact, I think there's one thing that people don't give enough credit for is that he's a great thrower of jump balls. If you ask a wide receiver, some guys— do a better job throwing jump balls than others. I know that jump balls require wide receivers to make catches, right? But Trevor Lawrence does a great job putting the ball up in the air, throwing it at a, at a great location where his guys can make a catch and take a chance on the ball. Um, again, I, I love, I'm a big fan of Trevor Lawrence. He's unbelievable. It's pretty obvious to everyone watching. Trevor Lawrence is an unbelievable quarterback. Now, there are three things, you know, there are three concerns I have about him or three things I want to see him work on moving forward with his game. The number one thing I would like to see Trevor Lawrence improve at is I'd like to see him do a better job stepping into pressure. When he's about to get hit, he falls away from pressure. Instead of stepping into his throw and taking the hit, he falls away, and it impacts his accuracy when he does that. And in college, he can get away with it. He can get away with uh, falling away from throws and being a little less accurate when guys are wide open. But in a couple of years, when Trevor Lawrence moves on from college to the NFL, that's not going to work as well. When wideouts are not wide open, and windows are smaller, he's going to have to step into throws and be more accurate. And so that's one thing I want to see Trevor Lawrence work on moving forward. Here's another thing I want to see Trevor Lawrence improve at. Um, you know, It's more of just an area he can improve in, something for you as fans to be aware of. When you watch the Boston College game, Boston College versus Clemson, um, Boston College did a really good job with their defense disguising coverages on the goal line. Uh, safeties would shift at the last second and change their coverage from what it looked like originally. Linebackers would show blitz and then back off. And that trickery threw Trevor Lawrence off a little bit. Um, and other teams are going to mimic this next season and moving forward when they play Clemson. And that is something that he should improve at dealing with. Um, we got to remember, Trevor Lawrence is only a freshman and I have absolute faith in him. But after watching film, you know, that that is one area where he can improve at is doing a better job when teams disguise their coverages and don't just give them a vanilla look that is, never changes from pre-snap all the way through the end of the play. Now, again, after watching film, this guy is special. Trevor Lawrence is an unbelievable quarterback. Um, I'm all in on him. I think he's a future number one overall pick. He's going to dominate college football for years. And as much as that's a blessing, it's also, I think, um, an interesting thing that he's going to struggle with. This, my number three concern might seem a little bit silly about Trevor Lawrence, um, but I really think it could potentially be a struggle. He is so dominant and he is so talented. And he literally he's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He's he's just unbelievable. Um, he might get bored, and he might begin to develop bad habits because of it. My question is, will he stay disciplined over the years? Uh, he has remaining in college football. He's got a couple of years left. Is he gonna? Stay disciplined. He's not getting challenged very much in college football. And over the years, will he keep taking what the defenses give him? Is he going to get greedy and try to make harder, more difficult throws into coverage? I mean, straight up, is he going to be willing to dink and dunk two years from now? That's literally the question. Because right now, dude, he almost perfect against Alabama. It's unbelievable what he did. Decision-making, Trevor Lawrence, that is why he's so good and why he's so much better than everybody else. Why he dominated as a true freshman at Clemson is Trevor Lawrence's mind. Is special. Can he keep it up? I just, I, I hope for him he doesn't get bored with success and I hope he stays disciplined. If he can do that, man, I, I, I really believe in him. I cannot believe, I cannot wait to watch uh, what's going to happen next, man. He's going to be an unbelievable quarterback. I think he's a future number one overall pick and I cannot wait to watch Trevor Lawrence moving forward. I'm all in on him. He's unbelievable, but you got to know this one thing what makes him special. His arm is great. He's got NFL arm talent, but the number one thing that makes Trevor Lawrence better than everybody else, it's his decision-making. Where he goes with the football, it's unbelievable. He only got sacked 11 times. Uh, I understand that his team is really good around. him. He's got great wide receivers, got a good offensive line, but you can't take that away from him. He makes great decisions, and that is why Trevor Lawrence is, in fact, a special quarterback. All right, guys, uh, that is all I have for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in. <sighs> I'm dead. I'm so tired. Uh, the, the timer says two minutes and 36 seconds, two hours, and 36 minutes, and I am ready to edit this and try to put it out. It'll be out Sunday morning now. That's sad to me, um, but I'm going to work on it all night, and I hope you guys enjoy this show when it does come out, guys. Thank you so much. Bum, bum, bam. We are done.